Well, good evening to you, and it is good to be back with you, and thank you so much for your prayers. We had just an amazing conference. We had over 2,000 people in attendance. We had our first heckler protester who was screaming at the top of his lungs, there is no rapture in the Bible, and he went on and on and on and on, and then he was raptured out of the building by security. So... It was just an incredible weekend. Thank you for your prayers. Please continue. I'll be on a plane tomorrow night headed for Denver, and we're going to have another Awaiting His Return conference in Parker, Colorado on Saturday. Back on a plane Saturday night, and here with you Sunday morning, looking at Psalm 24 and our word for the year. So looking forward to uh, that. Go ahead and read the whole psalm. Uh, It's 10 verses, and uh, you'll be prepped for Sunday morning. Well... I keep threatening 1 Samuel 20, and I'll threaten it again for next Wednesday night. And uh, I got so much response to this message that I did up at the conference, and I don't have any way to record it or to uh, prepare a DVD out of it so we can take it to other conferences. Uh, So I thought I'd do it and share it with you tonight so we can get it recorded, and also to encourage you uh, for the lateness of the hour and the expectancy we should have of the Lord's soon return for His church. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to set up our time tonight by considering this. I think we all recognize that in the day and age that we live, things can change rather rapidly. We saw the whole world change on September 11, 2001, and there are a multitude of other things that have changed in a rather short span of time. It was only a generation ago that if you knew something was true, you believed it. But today, if you believe something, that validates it as truth. And there are many who operate that way, even if it's only true for you, because you believe it, it is a valid truth. I want you to think about this. Less than a generation ago, there were only two genders. They were chromosomally identified, XX for female and XY for male. And today, it's multiple choice on any given day what gender you are. And you can even be somewhere in between the two if you so choose. I want you to think about this. Less than a generation ago, there was a national movement in our country to combat the growing problem of drugs in our nation. And it was called Just Say No. Today, it's on ballots all over our country to just say yes to what we used to say, just say no to, less than 25 years ago. Now, this reminds us that Jesus said there is coming a generation, a single generation that is going to see all the things that he mentioned in the Olivet Discourse take place. He said they would not pass away until all is fulfilled. Now, this generation begins with the rebirth of the nation of Israel, which was just celebrated uh, yesterday, uh, May 14th, 1948, was the rebirth of the nation according to our calendar. Now, we also need to remember that amidst the many changes we see a perception and reality in our day, long-held beliefs in the world are no longer considered to be Truth. there have been many changes within the thinking within the church in a rather short span of time, within a single generation. Now, 
Certainly there are subjects that we have covered over the past few weeks that are a little more exciting maybe. We've talked about wonderful things, but I do have to say our subject tonight is more crucial to you and I than any other. Even though we've talked about the prophetic necessity of the rapture of the church, we've talked about that there is going to be a time of Jacob's trouble where that is used to bring the remnant of Jews to salvation. We talked clearly that we are living in a time that was as it was in Noah's day. We considered the Ezekiel war and how the players are lining up and working in coalition together, as are the protesting nations who will ask the invaders, what are you coming to do? These are all very exciting topics to be sure. But we also find within that same generation that is seeing uh, has seen the rebirth of the nation of Israel, that not only can we see these other things happening or developing, but we also know that we've seen a radical shift in the thinking and beliefs within the church. And this too is prophetic. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, <clears throat> Paul told the church in Thessaloniki, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now this is called the abomination of desolation where the beast of Revelation 13 allows the Jews to rebuild the temple and then goes into the most holy place and declares himself to be God. Now, there's a lot of confusion over the verses we just read, but there's a common practice in Scripture where you're given an overview and then further details in the following verses, just like the creation narrative back in Genesis. Now, what this is telling us is that there is a day that is coming that is called the day of the Lord. And before the day of the Lord, there's going to be an apostasia or an apostasia, some would pronounce it. Now, it's defined as a defection from truth. And then when he who restrains is taken out of the way, only then can the lawless one be revealed. So the chronology is there'll be a defection from truth in the church, there'll be the rapture of the church, then there'll be the rise of the lawless one to power when the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit through the church is taken out of the way. Now, the word apostasia is defined as a defection from truth, but there's another form of the same word that means to divorce. It can also be translated as repudiation. Now, what that tells us, according to what Paul told the church at Thessaloniki, is that there is a generation of the church, a single generation, that on large scales are going to defect from the truth and repudiate. The word repudiate means refuse to accept. There's a portion of the church, a large portion, the major portion of the church is going to refuse to accept all or part of the word of God and divorce themselves from long held teachings and moral statutes held by the church throughout the centuries. There's a generation of church history where what is believed to be right is going to define truth rather than truth defining what is to be believed. Now, where can we find the sum total of all moral and spiritual truth? In the word of God. Amen. But in the last days, it's a matter of opinion or how you feel or what you experience that determines what is true for you. 
Now it's clear that the Bible says that in the generation that will see the rapture of the church and the ensuing tribulation that follows, there'll be a defection from truth within the church. Now Paul would also put it like this in his first letter to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now he says, the spirit expressly says that in what season? The latter times. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. We'll review some of the details and the meanings behind those phrases in a few moments. But the first thing I want to point out to you is that this is the only place in the whole Bible where the word translated as expressly is used. Now, it means outspokenly, or it means distinctly. In other words, the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us through a word never used elsewhere in Scripture about this particular season of church history, that we might be informed and prepared for last day's living when much of the church becomes apostate. Now, if you look at those four verses, now you need to get this this evening as kind of a setup for the rest of our time. Four things we see in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. We see a season of church history identified, the latter time. We see a departure from the faith foretold. It says departing from the faith. And also we see demonic influence infiltrating the church. And lastly, we see hypocrisy replacing holiness is revealed. Now, Paul talks about a seared conscience, and the conscience speaks of moral convictions. And Paul says in the latter times, spiritual discernment within the church will be so low that many of the church doctrines are going to change and be exchanged, if you will, for the doctrines of demons. And they won't just be unrecognized, they will be taught, defended, and promoted as valid. Now, I want to use another set of verses to launch us into our time this evening, and they're going to need a little bit of interpretive setup. Now, there's varied opinions concerning the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Some do not see a chronology within the seven letters. I do believe that it is there. And I would agree that the primary context is these are letters to literal churches in Asia Minor, and they also are descriptive of types of churches throughout the course of church history. And I would base my belief or opinion, if you will, on that which Dr. Henry Morris said. Even though the context may not be primary as a chronology of church history, you cannot deny the parallels with history. Now, with that in mind, I want you to consider the last letter. If we're looking at the letters to the seven churches as a chronology of church history, that means the final letter would represent the end of the church age. Now, remember what we read in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. In Revelation 3, 14 to 18, the Lord says, And to the angel or the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans, now, there's a change in language there. It's not the church in Smyrna. It's not the church in Pergamos. It's not the church in Thyatira. It's not the church in Sardis or the church in Philadelphia. This is the church of the Laodiceans, and that's important. Now, these things, says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. Later in chapter 19, we find that the white garments are the righteous acts of the saints. That you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, back your mind up to 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. And in Laodicea, we find a season of church history identified. We see a departure from the faith recognized in the form of lukewarmness. We see demonic doctrine emphasized claiming to be wealthy while actually being spiritually bankrupt. And we see a hypocrisy in the form of ignorant indifference to their corrupt spiritual state, yet claiming to have need of nothing and not knowing that they are apostate, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, here's why I wanted to pause and point out that this is the church of the Laodiceans. The term Laodicea is actually a compound word of laos, which means people, and dike, which means judgment or rule. So in other words, in the last days, the church is going to be ruled largely by the people or people's demands. Now, Paul also talked about this particular generation of church history when he wrote to Timothy in his last letter that he would write, and it happened to be to Timothy again. And the final chapter of his final letter says this in 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 4. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Somebody say amen. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come, there's a season of church history identified, when they will not endure sound doctrine. There's a departure from the faith. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to what? fables. There's doctrines of demons. Now, the final generation of church history before the rapture will be one where much of the church is teaching what people want to hear rather than what the Bible says. Now, I have refrained from titling tonight's message, Are We There Yet? So we'll just go with what's on the front of the podium. We're going to talk tonight about the deception defection, and it's under full swing today. Heaping up teachers of fables, the rejection of sound doctrine Paul wrote of will not only exist, but it will become dominant right before the Lord's appearing and his following kingdom. Now, one of the things, if you've ever been with us as we've taught through the book of Revelation, that I like to point out particularly in chapters 2 and 3 where the seven letters are contained, and that is that there is no eighth letter. So if we consider the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor to have at least a hint or a parallel with church history, meaning the seventh is the last letter, then when the church reaches the state where the people rule, Jesus is coming for his church soon. There is no eighth letter. Amen? Now, that means in the latter times, when apostasy is in full swing, 
doctrines of demons are preferred over the soundness of the apostles' doctrines, the Lord is coming soon because we are at the end of the church age. So let's take a look at what the deception defection actually looks like and therefore take heed to these things as a reminder. It's time to look up because our redemption is near. We'll look at three characteristics of the deception defection tonight. And they are the departure from the faith, heeding deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, and speaking lies and hypocrisy with a seared conscience. And if these things are presently dominant within the church, we can be assured the Lord is coming soon. Pray with me, please. Father, we now ask that you would bless our time together, give us clarity of thought and hearing, Lord, that we might heed the things that we are looking at tonight And Lord, recognize that it matters what we believe. And it's not simply a free-for-all, a cut and paste, a pick and choose, or salad bar approach to your word. But the entirety of your word is truth, and your word stands fast in the heavens. Help us to stand on it tonight and recognize the season we are in. And therefore, be both excited about your return and passionate about reaching the lost. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul talked about a departing from the faith. Jesus addressed Laodicea concerning their lukewarmness. He said, you're neither hot nor cold. In other words, hot water has a purifying influence on whatever it touches. Cold water is refreshing. So he's telling the church, you're neither refreshing the world nor are you purifying it because of your lukewarm state. And thus he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't care how you slice it. There's nothing positive to glean from that. The Lord is in essence just saying, I reject this type of church. Now, it's interesting that the word depart in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 means to remove. It can mean to withdraw. But the primary meaning is to instigate a revolt. Paul says in the last days, there are going to be those who instigate a revolt against the long-held doctrines of the church and replace those doctrines with those of demons And it will become predominant in the latter times. Now, what Paul wrote and what Jesus said to the Laodicean church should serve as a reminder and a warning that insertions into what the church teaches requires the exit of sound doctrine. You can't simply be silent on the matters of Scripture, the things that are important, without having opened a door for the enemy to slip something else in that he would prefer taught inside the walls of buildings called churches. Now, we also know that Jesus introduces the idea of an apostasia in the opening statements of the sermon, uh, or the Olivet Discourse, rather, in Matthew 24, 3 and 4, when he says this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples, the two pair of fishermen brothers, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, came to him, Luke tells us that, privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, listen to the first thing that he says, take heed that no one does what? Deceive you. That implies deception will be rampant before he comes. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now, if we actually pay close attention to what's being said here, I think we all recognize pretty quickly that if somebody comes and says, I am the second coming of Jesus of Nazareth, 
The last guy that did that, kind of interestingly, was from Puerto Rico. And I don't know when the transition between Jew and Puerto Rican happened, but it must have taken place somewhere in heaven if this guy was the second coming of Jesus. People like that are dismissed pretty quickly, aren't they? Yeah, obviously. So what Jesus is saying is this. If we remember that the word Christ means anointing or anointed, what Jesus is saying is that an age of deception is going to come where many claim an anointing and association with Jesus. These deceivers, Paul said, are going to instigate a revolt against sound doctrine. Now, there have always been defectors from the truth in the church, but the fact that this is mentioned in the context of the latter days or the last days tells us that something distinct is going to happen during a limited time frame known as the generation that will not pass away. Now, this began, as we said, with the rebirth of the nation of Israel. The church then began its march in earnest to the Laodicean Age And it first encountered what's called the seeker-sensitive movement. Now listen, the basic premise of the seeker-sensitive movement is that there are many people out there who are seeking God but don't like church. And therefore, this is what is keeping people to coming to faith in Christ because they don't like church. And therefore, the seeker movement pioneered a new method of church planting involving demographic studies, community surveys that ask the unsaved, what is it that you want in church that would get you to come to church? It was kind of a, if you build it the way they like it, they will come. And this was a revolt against tradition in the church. Now, their reasoning was this. If you give the unsaved better entertainment that they can receive elsewhere, or if you do church in a non-confrontational way, they're going to come and hopefully at some point in a small group or a house meeting, you can slip in the gospel and they'll get saved. This is their own format and plan. Now, that makes the focus of the seeker church man-centered instead of Christ-centered. And thus Jesus said, do not be deceived. When some come and say, I have an anointing from the Lord, don't go after them. Now, the main purpose of the seeker church's existence is to give people what they want to meet their felt needs. Now, this movement is now morphed into what's called the social gospel, where the church is basically meant to meet the world's needs and these uh, social movements around the world are becoming primary in the church, even at the absence of preaching the gospel. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about how this whole movement began. There's actually a church outside of Chicago that birthed this whole movement, rather interestingly. And they went out to the neighborhood and they took surveys and demographic studies so they could know how better to do church. Now, I want you to think about this. Asking the world how the church should conduct itself is kind of like asking Tiger Woods for marriage advice. That's not too smart, is it? But yet that is exactly what has happened. And Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? By the word of God. The seeker movement says that's not working anymore. 
We need to make some adjustments. We need a new business model. And there have to be changes in our approach if we're going to get people saved. They revolted against what has led hundreds of millions of people for nearly two millennia to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if we were to put a summary conclusion on the departure from the faith, we could simply put it like this in a tactical sense. Listen, a shrinking church will resort to increasing secularism. In the last days, a shrinking church will resort to increasing secularism. Now, one of the elements within the church today is called kingdom now theology, reconstructionism, or dominion theology. And again, this is a dominant belief in the church today, and that is that the church has to have dominion over every aspect of the world, socially, economically, and certainly spiritually, and even governmentally, in order for Jesus to come back. In other words, the basic premise is the church has to dominate. The church has to make this world a better place. We have to solve all the social issues in the world. And that's why we see so many socially active Christian groups associating their ministry with the name of Jesus Christ, because they believe that if the world isn't made ready, Jesus isn't coming back. Now, here's the problem with that. The Bible teaches exactly the opposite. Things aren't going to get better, at least not until the Prince of Peace rules from David's throne in Jerusalem. Things are going to be a mess when the Lord comes back for his church. Now, in Matthew 24, 37 to 38, we're told as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. How many are familiar with Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham's ministry? It's a wonderful ministry, and I hope sometime you get to go back and tour the museum and see the Ark Project. And we were there last year, and I got a chance to tour the Ark. And there's one particular uh, placard that I just couldn't uh, forget and haven't. And it was finally a team of mathematicians figured out how many people there were on the face of the earth using near-perfect uh, near perfect DNA also the lifespan, the average lifespan of those who lived in the time of Noah. Obviously an increased birth rate from what we have today because of the near genetic perfection. And Ken Ham's people calculated that at the time of the flood, there were over 16 billion people on the surface of the earth. How many got on the ark? Eight. Jesus said that's how it's going to be. The comparison between those who are actually faithful to the Lord and believe God is going to be minute to the number of those who have rejected him. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I'll remind you of an article from April 7th, 2019, that for the first time in the history of our country, atheists constitute the largest group, a religious group in America. Now, that's happened in a single generation. Things have turned around in a single generation. And the reason for this is the departure from the apostles' doctrines, heaping up teachers who will tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. We live in an age where many churches have adopted playing secular songs to make the seeker feel more comfortable 
in church. We live in an age where crosses and pulpits have been removed from the walls and the stage and pastors often don't hold the Bible in their hand because those things are viewed as authoritarian and will drive off people. Listen, many churches today are designed more like a nightclub than a house of worship. And again, the effort is to make visitors more comfortable. The problem is that by design, the church isn't supposed to be anything like the world. And I'm, I like our churchy church. We got stained glass, we got a cross, we got a pulpit, we got Bibles, we got all that kind of good stuff. Amen? There's nothing wrong with technology. There's nothing wrong with these screens and all the other things we see in many churches. There's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But if they replace the gospel and become a tactic that they believe that can save, we need to remember faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, in John 16, 7 and 8, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, listen close. He will do what? What's the next word? Convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, listen, I want you to think about this logically. When the unsaved come to church and find that what the church is and does is what they already have and do, then their only conclusion can be, who needs church? Now, the fact is, because the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is the conviction of sin, many people today, when they come to church and hear something convicting, they don't change their ways, they simply change churches. Because you can always find a church today that will tickle your ears and hear, give you what you want to hear. Now... This reminded me of a story of a man who was shipwrecked on an island by himself for some 10 years. And every time he'd see a ship off in the distance, he'd light a signal fire and hope that someone would see him. Well, this man one day rolls around and there's a ship out on the horizon. He hurries together and, and builds his fire up. And finally, after a decade, somebody sees his signal fire and a rescue boat is sent out from the ship to the shore where the man was. Well, the rescuers reached the shore and obviously the man is elated. And after a few moments and helping the man out, giving him something to drink and eat real quick, one of the rescuers noticed that there's three huts behind the man on the beach. And the rescuer says, who else is here? Are there other people on the island? He said, no, it's just me. And the man, uh, the rescuer says, well, why the three huts? He said, well, the one on the left is my house and the one in the middle is my church. And the guy said, well, what's the other one for? He said, well, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) People are bouncing around from church to church today and not staying put where they can grow. And they're always, it seems, looking for something that will tickle their ears. Paul said, in the last days, many people, will attend churches that are telling them what they want to hear. And what people want to hear today is something that makes them more comfortable just as they are. I like the old saying that, you know, when you come into church, the message ought to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's exactly what the Word of God does. Amen? Now listen, when secularism creeps in, the Word of God goes out. 
And the fact is, we've got a really dangerous practice in our day, and that is measuring the spirituality of a church by the number of attendees. Listen, there's 1.3 billion Muslims. Does that mean Islam is true? Of course not. The same thing is applied to a church. There are lots of churches that are growing. There are lots of groups that are growing, but the church isn't. Listen, a spiritual vacuum is created that the devil is more than willing to fill with deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons when sound doctrine is no longer tolerated. Now, there's another element that we need to discuss here this morning, or this evening rather, that is dominant today, and it too indicates that we are at the end of the church age. Now, I was going to ask you if you want to hear a doctrine of demon, but I hope you say no. But I'm going to give you one anyway and then tell you a little something that happened uh, in Toronto. Listen, here is a doctrine of demons that is being taught widely in the church today. Are you ready? This is a deceiving spirit and a doctrine of demons. And that is salvation is possible without repentance. This is being taught all over the world today. That salvation is possible without repentance. Now, you see the little line at the bottom, Doctrine of Demons? Apparently not. This isn't an eye chart up here. You ought to be able to see that. You see that little line, Doctrine of Demons? That was just added for tonight because I didn't have that on the slide when we were in Toronto. And I set the thing up just like I did with you. This isn't true. This is a Doctrine of demon, And Amir took a picture of it And after my message was done at the uh, lunch break, he said, I'm going to make a lot of money off of you this year because I'm going to send all the discernment people that slide where you said salvation is possible without repentance. So get ready for some extortion. So we were out to dinner that night and I told my son who was with us to put an umbrella in Amir's drink so I could get a picture of it and I could send it out. Amir relaxing with a couple of drinks after we were teaching. So basically we're extorting one another uh, after this conference. So, But this is what is widely taught today. That there's no need to repent. All you need to do is believe in Jesus and you indeed are saved. Now, one of the words and concepts that is viewed as too aggressive today that drives away the seeker is just that. It's repentance. Now, this has given birth to the growing belief and practice of universalism within the church or universal salvation. Now, one of the main proponents of universalism, a man named Thomas Wiltmore, wrote in his book, The Plain Guide to Universalism, the following words, and I quote, The sentiment by which universalists are distinguished is this. That at last, every individual of the human race shall become holy and happy. End quote. Is that true? Is everybody going to become holy whether they believe in Jesus or not? Now, universalism has within its stated principles a doctrine called theosis. You can also call uh, theosis divinization. It's a process of being made godlike or Christ-like. Now, theosis means that all souls will ultimately be reconciled and conformed into the image of the glorified and resurrected Christ, whether they believe in Jesus or not, are born again or not, have repented of their sin or not. Now, 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter wrote this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. 
Now, I happen to believe that 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Do you believe that tonight? Now, Peter didn't say, which is part of scripture, obviously, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to church, or that they would all come to God as they see him, or that they would all arrive at a state of nirvana or a higher plane of consciousness or anything else. Peter said God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Now, Revelation 21.8 also reminds us that the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, what do you do with that verse if universalism is true? Now, we live in an age where we have cussing pastors. We have churches serving beer. We have gay affirming churches. We have pastors saying that Christians today need to unhitch from the Old Testament. We have pastors writing books stating that because God is love, a place like hell is inconsistent with God's loving nature and therefore it doesn't exist because in the end, love wins. And that is the title of a book. But we need to remember what Jesus said in conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. He said, not everyone, say not everyone. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I, now listen close to what Jesus says, I, what's the next word? Never knew you, not I once knew you and you walked away. Not I once knew you and you backslid or fell away. He said, I never knew you in spite of all those religious activities done in my name. And then he says, depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. Now, Paul also would tell the church in Thessaloniki in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, for the mystery of what? Lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, the word lawlessness is a Greek word anomia. And it's the state of, it's not the state of living in reckless disregard of known laws like a criminal would. It means to be without law, to have no code to live by. And within the deceiving spirits doctrines today is a movement called hyper grace or free grace. Its proponents believe that grace removes any moral standard by which the Christian should live, thus denying repentance as being part of being saved by grace through faith. Now, the belief is called antinomianism. Now, anti meaning against, and nomia meaning the law. Now, one of the free grace teachers said, a man very famous, speaks all over the world to huge audiences, and he said, listen, Because of grace, God is never upset with you or anyone. You're going to have a hard time selling that to Ananias and Sapphira. I'd say the Lord was pretty upset with them, wouldn't you? Now, what do we do with this from Hebrews 12, 5 to 9? And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the what? The chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. 
If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening or discipline, of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in what? Subjection to the Father of spirits and live. Now, I want you to think about what this man said, that God is never upset with us. If God is never upset with us, then what is the standard by which he disciplines us? What does he chasten us for? Is it just arbitrary? Does he just say, you know what, uh, Bob over there, I haven't smacked him around in a while. I'm going to mess with him for a little bit. Doesn't there have to be some type of standard? Hebrews goes on to say that we are corrected by earthly fathers. Correction assumes error or implies error. Errors require a standard by which they are measured against. What is that standard? I'll give you a hint. What is that standard? It's the word of God. Now, that standard is not the 613 statutes of the Mosaic Law. The standard is a universal moral code known as the Ten Suggestions. The Ten what? Commandments. Now, listen, to say there is no law is not an interpretation of Scripture. It's the doctrine of demons. And it denies God's judicial nature. The Bible presents God as a just judge. The Bible says he's angry with the wicked every day. The the Bible says that all the unbelieving dead are someday going to stand before him at the great white throne judgment. And they'll be judged according to their works. Now, many today present grace in a way that is inconsistent with Scripture and the very meaning of the word. Now, we're all familiar with Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest, uh, or not of yourselves, rather. It is a gift of God. Goes on to say, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, the Greek word charis is translated as grace, but that's the translation. That's not the definition. The definition of grace is divine influence in the heart and its reflection in the life. That's what the word charis is defined as. It's translated as grace or graciousness. Now, the Hebrew word we often, Pastor Chuck has a wonderful book, uh, Why Grace Changes Everything. We need to recognize the first thing grace changes is you. It changes me. Grace is never passive. Grace is always active. Grace is influencing our hearts. So there's reflections and changes in our life. Now, the Hebrew word found in Genesis 6, 5, Cain, if you want to use uh, English characters, C-H-E-N-E, the word means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. And this is where we get the definition unmerited favor. It comes from the Hebrew. The Greek word charis always and only means, every time it's used in the New Testament, it always means divine influence in the heart and its reflection in the life. There's one word that would describe such activity, and that word is repentance. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says this. You guys still here? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Your bodies, your physical activity, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Listen to what else he says. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing. That word can be translated as renovated also. By the renovation or renewing of your mind. 
resulting in this, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, grace doesn't eliminate God's moral code. Grace activates the ability to live by God's moral code by the power of the Spirit within us, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Listen, secularism in the church rids the church of any resemblance to the things the unsaved don't like. And it's an open door to a spirit of deception that teaches a repentanceless salvation. Paul told Timothy, this creates a hypocrisy that sears the conscience. Now, we encountered the phrase seared with a hot iron earlier. And the word uh, that this phrase comes from actually means to cauterize, our English word. It means to mark by branding. Figuratively, the word means souls branded with the mark of sin. Now, when life is lived as though there is no moral standard, the mind is not renewed, as Paul said in Romans, but rather the mind is cauterized. It is scarred and becomes desensitized. Now, when the mind becomes insensitive or lacks conviction, then the desire and need for repentance becomes non-existent, and you wind up with what we have today. Cussing pastors, you know, I am going to hound on that one a lot because I just couldn't imagine it. I could not imagine saying, a foul word from the pulpit. That would be foul. It would be disgusting. It would be vile. It would be repulsive. And yet some have their conscience so seared they're completely cussing or comfortable with cussing from behind the pulpit. It reminds me of something that uh, J. Vernon McGee shared. He was out on a foursome playing golf and one of the men hit a poor shot and a string of profanity came out of him and he went to Dr. McGee and said, oh, I'm so sorry, I apologize. That's not just not in me. And McGee said, well, it's got to be in you to come out of you. The Lord is in the business of changing our language. Amen? And cleaning up our tongue, sobering us up and these other things. And listen, cussing pastors leads to drunken and immoral congregants who say that grace has saved them, which is hypocrisy because grace is divine influence in the heart and its reflection in the life. Now, here's the last piece of evidence that the Lord is coming for his bride soon. And it is another doctrine of demons from spiritually apostate teachers that tell us the apostasy of the last days is in full swing. Listen, here's the last of the three things I wanted you to note tonight. Listen, repentance from sin will be replaced with the acceptance of it. When the apostasy is in full swing, repentance from sin will be replaced with the acceptance of it. Now, this is the epitome of hypocrisy, which comes from a seared conscience. Now, if you remember, there's a moral digression presented to us in the book of Romans in chapter 1, in which the Holy Spirit says twice through Paul that those who reject the evidence God has presented through creation, they are given up first to uncleanness, then they are given up to vile passions, and then finally they are given over to debase minds, to do the things which are not fitting, things against the law of God and the laws of nature. And then Paul says this in one eighteen to 21 of Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, what's the next word? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
Because what may be made known, may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even or including his eternal power and Godhead, speaking of the triune nature of God. So they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became what? Futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Look at the opposite of what grace actually does. Grace has a divine influence on the heart, and it reflects in the life. The doctrines of demons also has an influence on the heart, and it too reflects in the life. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, twice they are given up to their own desires, and finally they're given over to their own desires, indicating an irreversible condition. Listen, there are so many things going on in the church today that are shocking, some less shocking than others. There was an article in Charisma News just yesterday that a very popular Southern Baptist woman teacher, a woman named Beth Moore, I'm sure many of you have heard uh, of her. She says that women should be allowed to preach behind the pulpit on Sunday. And it is something that uh, needs to go away. And this misogynistic attitude of the church today needs to change. Now, April 27th, CBS News said that a church in Durham, North Carolina, held a drag queen performance in the sanctuary. Do you think that God was pleased with that? you think he likes his house being used for such things? April 30th in Madison, Wisconsin, CBS News again reported two men operating the Lion of Judah House of Rastafari Church have accepted donations to distribute marijuana to parishioners. And since they decided to distribute marijuana to parishioners, they say about 6,000 people have signed up to become church members. How's that for a church growth program? We'll pass out drugs. Now, the two pastors say openly using and distributing marijuana as a sacrament is religious, and therefore it is an inalienable right protected by the Constitution. And March 18th, the Canadian Free Press said raging pro-abortion activists are found behind the pulpit. The article says, how many churchgoers filling Sunday pews at the United Church of Christ, United Methodist Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Episcopal Church, Unitarian Universalist Association, Christian Church, the Disciples of Christ, the Unity Church realized their pastors publicly stated their support of the abortion chain planned Parenthood publicly twice in the last two years. I've talked with numerous young pastors that seem to be under the delusion that drinking is a necessary part of reaching the lost and have even been told, listen, if you're not comfortable having a beer now and then, you don't understand grace. Oh, I understand grace fully. Grace is what allowed me to put the beer down and never pick it up again. That's what grace did for me. There was divine influence in my heart that reflected in my life in the form of sobriety. Listen, I don't need to have a beer now and then. Beer destroyed my marriage. Well, whiskey did. Whiskey caused my wife to leave me. There's nothing positive about it. I want nothing to do with it. And I fully understand grace. And I don't need to have a drink to show other people that I get it. Somebody say amen. Now, Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Here's what that looks like. 
with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Somebody say hallelujah or something. Now, I want you to think about this today. We are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, but many today are endeavoring to keep the Spirit of unity regardless of what is being taught or said within the confines of a building that is called the church. Lawlessness is abounding in places where the name of the Lord is being used and things are supposedly being done in his name in the form of miracles. Many today are rejecting repentance from sin. Many today are promoting the acceptance of sin. Now, one thing to keep in mind in closing, there's a spiritual condition that's going to manifest itself during the tribulation where people are going to call on the rocks and the mountains to hide them from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb. They're not going to develop to develop that during the tribulation. They're going to go into the tribulation with that attitude. They'd rather pray to the earth than pray to the God who made it. Now, therefore, it only stands to reason that atheism will be on the rise prior to the tribulation. Doctrines of demons based on the influence of deceiving spirits will become prevalent in the the church. And I submit to you tonight, in closing, the deception defection has to be in full swing according to Scripture before the tribulation. And we might even say it necessitates the rapture. And one last thing, and this might be it. Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for what? Nothing. But to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. When the church begins to be trampled underfoot by the world, because it has lost its preserving and purifying influence by adopting the doctrines of demons in the form of ear-tickling fables, I submit to you tonight that the remnant of the church on the earth is about to be taken out of the world in a moment and the twinkling of an eye. Now, the deception defection may not be our favorite topic, but it is just as much a part of the prophetic scenario as the other things we've discussed prior to this. Jesus is coming soon. And as the head of the church, he's going to take us to his father's house in a moment and the twinkling of an eye. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. And Father, again, we are grateful for this very difficult information. It's almost like a look in the mirror at the whole of the church and to see so many wrong things going on in our day. The loss of piety and purity and 
sanctification not being taught anymore. And pastors even bragging about having never taught sanctification or justification or propitiation in their church. The basic doctrines by which uh, we are able to stand in these last days. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We honor your word. We recognize it is your word. And, Lord, we also see from your word that the defection deception is well underway. So, Lord, help us to do all that we can to stand and remain fully armored up, having put on that which you gave us to wear, uh, figuratively speaking, in these last days, and not to be deceived by the things that are putting people in seats in buildings called churches today but not changing lives and therefore not changing the destiny of souls. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to get clarity on this very necessary subject tonight. So bless us, we pray, as we go. Lord, help us to not be unaware of the Pharisees were of the times and the seasons, but rather to know you are about to come. And even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us to be about your Father's business as you were until you come. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people in agreement said, Amen.